This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 2nd, 2021. I'm Megan Cantwell. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First this week, producer Joel Goldberg talks with contributing correspondent Sam Keen about how museum conservators are finding ways to save plastic artifacts, such as David Bowie costumes, from breaking down. Sam's story is part of this week's science special issue on plastics. Next, I speak with researcher Dane Fratenduano about new standards for measuring extreme pressure. Finally, in a sponsored segment, director of custom publishing Sean Sanders talks with researcher Laura McKay about the importance of diversity in STEM. Now we'll speak with Sam Keen, contributing correspondent at Science and host of the Disappearing Spoon podcast. Plastics are often associated with waste, but they can also be found in valuable modern art. In his new article in Science, Keen explores the vulnerability of plastic-based art. From David Bowie costumes and Disney animation cells to foam pumpkins, modern artifacts are at risk due to their synthetic components. Hi, Sam. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. This article really fascinated me, not something I would typically think about. When I think about art, my mind usually turns to oil paintings and marble busts. Mm -hmm. Where does plastic fit into the equation? Obviously, plastic is more involved in modern art, especially 20th century art. But a lot of artists like it because it gave them a lot of freedom. And they liked it for the same reasons that, you know, regular everyday consumers like plastic. It's flexible. You can mold it into all sorts of different shapes. It has different qualities. It can be shiny or have more of a matte surface, depending on what you're looking for. So artists really like that uh, flexibility that plastic gave them. Nowadays, artists are really interested in recycling plastics into art, things like that. What I discuss more in the article are usually early plastic objects, so not necessarily recycled stuff, but things that artists were molding, pouring, trying to make in the 20th century more. And those really run the gamut of early plastics. You have cellulose acetate stuff polyurethane foam, just all sorts of different things. And it's not just art necessarily either. You can talk about furniture design, early important clothing, things like that. There's a raincoat in there I talk about that can stand up all on its own as if there's a ghost inhabiting it because it got so stiff after years of neglect. So there's really a lot of different things you're talking about when it comes to museums preserving plastic art and plastic objects in general. Yeah, that variety really stuck out to me. One prominent one in your piece is an Italian artist who handmade foam sculptures. Yeah, his name was Piero Gilardi. 
he was working in the 1960s and 1970s, and he made these just gorgeous and really fun pieces made of polyurethane foam. He would take and he would sculpt pumpkins from them or roses or rocks or things like that. And they're strikingly realistic looking. He called them nature carpets. So it would be just, you know, something about the size of a mattress or so that was covered with these really bright, fun, spongy foam objects. And he was really uh, not very precious about his artwork. Uh, I think a lot of us think of museums as, you know, having something hanging up on the wall and someone's going to bark at us if we get too close. But uh, Gilardi actually would roll them on the floor. He would let kids bounce on them. He would bounce on them. Unfortunately, the polyurethane foam that he was using was inherently unstable. And after, you know, 15, 20 years or so, it's really vulnerable to light decay. And so these bright, colorful pumpkins and other things started crumbling. They started cracking, falling apart. And instead of having them rolled out and letting children jump on them, museums often had to roll them up and put them into storage. So it was a real shame that this had to happen to them. Right. I think of plastics as these impossible things to get rid of. Why is preserving them so difficult? Yeah, it is sort of funny because we normally think about plastics, as you said, as a problem because they're too durable, that they last too long. But plastics do break down. They might break down into smaller pieces or they might break down chemically into something else. So even if they're not useful anymore, they do change over time. And of course, if it's a culturally important object, we don't want it to break down at all. We want to preserve it and save it in its original form. A lot of early movies were filmed on nitrocellulose, which is breaking down now. It doesn't last very long. So even though plastics are usually thought of as a problem, preserving them in their pristine original state is really a significant challenge. So there are so many types of plastic-based artifacts and art out there. What about the kinds of plastics that are in these pieces? I would make a distinction between early plastics and later or modern plastics. With early plastics, frankly, they just didn't know enough about the chemistry of them. They hadn't been around that long. They've only been around since the mid-1800s. And people just didn't realize that they were going to break down. And so with these early plastic objects especially, they're very vulnerable to moisture, to temperature fluctuations, to ultraviolet light. All those things can go in and they can break down the long polymer strands that make up plastics and start to degrade them. Nowadays, plastics are much more sturdy because they make them out of different materials, first of all. But even some of those older, more vulnerable plastics, they now can add things in, other ingredients in, that can stabilize them and actually help improve their lifespan. So a lot of the problem was we just didn't know that these things were vulnerable way back when they started. But unfortunately, those are a lot of the objects that museums want to preserve. So that's why they face that challenge. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground now? What are people in museums doing? What techniques are they using to protect their plastic art? They're doing a couple different things that I found really interesting. One of them is they're actually running controlled experiments now. So they might make a piece of plastic or actually make lots of pieces of plastic and they'll put them in storage units at different temperatures and just see what happens to them. 
That way they can tweak the temperature of it. They can tweak the humidity of it just to see which is the optimal condition for storage. That's something obviously you wouldn't want to do if you're talking about the object itself. You don't want to experiment on that. But if you can come up with a similar plastic, you can try some different techniques and see if any of those work better than the best practices now. And one thing I found really interesting about that is, again, there are a lot of modern plastics that have stabilizers and other ingredients in them that help them last longer, which is kind of a problem if you're a conservator looking back on historic plastics because the experiments on the modern plastics aren't necessarily going to give you the same results as experiments on historic plastics. So they've actually had to go and buy their own machines to extrude and to make historically accurate plastics. And then they took to, you know, flipping through old magazines and things for recipes on how to make old plastics to make sure that they could make historically accurate plastic to run their experiments on. Sounds fairly painstaking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a really involved process, but if they want to get it right, that's about the only choice for these vulnerable objects. And the other thing they're trying to do is they're trying to actually arrest or maybe even in some cases reverse the decay that's happening. I mentioned the nature carpets a moment ago, and it sounded kind of doom and gloom. But using some modern materials from plastics manufacturers, they've actually been able to infuse some of the nature carpets with stabilizers. They call them sunscreen, actually, because their main point of them is to block sunlight. But with these modern sunscreens, they can actually stop the decay and strengthen them a little bit. And some of these nature carpets, as a result, have actually been able to go back on display. So it's kind of a success story in this world of plastic conservation. Aside from that hands-on work being done, you wrote about a project that catalogs plastic artifact data online. I think the acronym was POPART. Could you explain that? Yeah, so there are modern high-tech lab tools that you can use, things like spectroscopy machines, that can diagnose what plastic objects you have in your collection. Because one big challenge for people at museums is sometimes they don't even know what type of plastic they have. And if you don't know what type of plastic you have, it makes it hard to know exactly how to conserve it. So if you have access to these high-tech machines, you can figure out what plastic you have. It's fairly straightforward. Unfortunately, not every small museum has access to a, you know, $10,000, $20,000 machine just to diagnose a few plastic pieces. So some places have actually started putting databases online where you can use sensory tools, essentially, to diagnose your plastic. You can do something like tap on it and see what sound it makes. Or you can uh, hold it under the light and see, does it have a waxy finish? Does it have a dull finish? My favorite one probably was the different smells that plastics put out. So when they decay, some of them smell vinegary. Some smell like old tennis shoes. Some smell like mothballs. There's a lot of different things they can smell like depending on what exactly the plastic is and what other ingredients that you use. So it's kind of using all of your senses to diagnose what plastic you have. And then you can take the next step to make sure you preserve it. When we think about plastics as these very sterile objects, but they have kind of their own life and they, they change over time. One conservator you interviewed spoke about plastic art as a way for future societies to understand our modern era. Is this ultimately what's at stake? I think so. Uh, what she said really stuck with me. She essentially said that if you look at the Stone Age or the Irons Age or the Bronze Age, 
Those ages were defined by people going to museums and looking at the objects there and trying to figure out what humankind was doing in those different eras. And she said the same thing will probably happen to us in the future, that we're going to be defined by our plastic objects. We really want to make sure that we're preserving the best that we have because we really are now living in an age of plastic. In a lot of ways, it's the dominant material of our time. What about the flip side? Why are these plastics so important to today's society? The other thing that's at stake is that these are really important objects for us. One object that often gets brought up in terms of plastic conservation is Neil Armstrong's spacesuit. And that would be a huge loss to humankind if that decayed simply because we didn't know how to take care of it. The first artificial heart is another example. These are very, very important objects for us culturally. And no matter what happens in the future, I think there would be a loss for us today if these objects suddenly disappeared. What do you ultimately think will become of plastic art? Is it doomed to become scads of toxic crud, as you've described in your piece? I think it really depends on the piece. Some of the early stuff we're probably going to lose, and it's probably only going to be around in photograph form or picture form. It'll be like those lost plays from ancient Greece or something where we know they existed, but we just don't have them around anymore. But I think that with modern plastics, especially because we know better nowadays how to preserve them and how to take care of them, I am optimistic that they can last as long as old paintings have or maybe even old sculptures have. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sam Keen is a contributing correspondent at Science and author of the upcoming book, The Ice Pick Surgeon. You can find a link to his science article and all other articles from this week's issue at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for Dane Frattenduano. We're going to talk about new standards for high-pressure experiments. In 1946, Percy Bridgman won the Nobel Prize in Physics for developing equipment that could create extremely high pressures, about a hundredth of a terapascal, and now nearly seven decades later, experimental physicists can generate pressures that are orders of magnitude higher. But there has been some difficulty in the community in measuring pressure that's that extreme. In the June 11th issue of Science, Dane Frattenduano and colleagues wrote about how they developed a new standard to help better measure extreme pressure. Thanks so much for joining me, Dane. Oh, it's great to be here. I was really drawn to this research just because of how extreme the pressure is that you're using, could you put into context exactly how high the pressure that you're using in these experiments are? We're trying to access the pressure states in the interior of the gas giants in our solar system in the center of Saturn. That's about 40 million atmospheres or four terapascals. So we're trying to push into what we're calling the terapascal regime. Extreme pressure is super important for all kinds of geological processes. An example that the audience might be familiar with is putting carbon under pressure to make diamonds, but that is not nearly as high pressure as what you're working with here. What kind of properties can emerge when you're working with extremely high pressures, as you mentioned, four terapascals, even higher than that? We're seeing a lot of interesting physics phenomenon emerging over the past decade. Some interesting things that were recently discovered at about a terapascal is what we're calling superionic waters. That's this interesting phase of matter in which the 
oxygen atoms are fixed in their position and the hydrogen atoms are free to move throughout the lattice, and that's a new state of matter, we're finding that we can take materials that are insulators like hydrogen, and if we compress them to high enough pressure, about 5 megabar or 0.5 terapascals, you can convert this insulating material into a metal, so you can turn hydrogen into a metal. There's also some recent discoveries of superconductivity at relatively high pressure. So it's a big scientific effort to try to discover the first room temperature superconductor because that would really transform how we transport energy, how we store energy. Some of our big research institutions, MRI machines and hospitals require superconductivity. So extreme pressures are allowing us to access unique states of matter that we're trying to better understand what causes them to hopefully leverage them and develop new materials that can be used at room temperature conditions. It seems like a key part of this research is knowing the exact measurement of pressure that you're exerting. It's at this exact pressure that this material behaves in this way or this new quality forms. But it was interesting to learn that it's kind of hard to get exactly precise measurements of pressure that you're applying. Why is it that usually it's a little tricky to get those precise measurements? It depends upon the experimental technique that you're doing. A technique that many people use and has been used for over 50 years are you take two diamonds and you put a small piece of material between the two diamonds and you apply a lot of force and you try to compress the material at the tips and you could try to do a calculation where pressure is force divided by area, right? But there's a lot of friction and the area is ill-defined in those experiments. And you're creating very tiny sample sizes and small uncertainties in terms of the error really equate to large uncertainties in terms of the pressure. There's many techniques that we know we can develop extreme pressure states and you can look at the density and you can see how compressed the material has become, but it's really hard to extract out a force divided by area. Right. The main focal point of your research was creating a new standard for gold and platinum and how it changes under high pressure. So a lot of researchers use gold and platinum as kind of a reference to compare what they are actually applying pressure to. Could you explain exactly how these kind of equation of state measurements are used by researchers to understand exactly the kind of pressure they're exerting on objects? So many researchers, when they create these really high pressure states, they recognize that they're not going to be able to determine the pressure. So in their experiment, they will add a small piece of gold or platinum, and they will use that material as a reference. Oftentimes, they take their small samples to advanced light sources. So these are facilities that can make very high-energy X-rays, and they perform X-ray diffraction measurements on the sample that they're interested in, as well as the reference material, gold or platinum. And X-ray diffraction allows them to extract out the density of the sample. So in essence, they measure the density of the material that they're interested in relative to the density of gold or platinum. For many years, we've been developing advanced models and theories that state for a given density of gold or platinum, we believe the pressure would be a certain value. There have been some experimental measurements in the past to basically benchmark 
that reference scale of pressure to density for gold and platinum. But those measurements had been limited to 0.3, 0 0.4 terapascals, and they were using a technique of shock compression, which is a very accurate technique at low pressures, but there's some limitations as you try to drive to higher and higher pressures due to shock heating, which we probably won't get into on this podcast. What is the technique that your team used to generate extreme pressures and figure out these precise measurements for what density an object becomes at a certain pressure? In a shock wave experiment, the shock wave generates a lot of heat, which you don't want. You want to try to keep the measurements on gold and platinum as cold as possible in order to extract the pressure density relationship. This new technique that's called ramp compression, you try to launch a series of compression waves into a sample in a very specific order and a very specific rate such that you don't form a shock wave. So we used two facilities. We used a laser facility. And in those experiments, the duration of the experiment is about 10 billionths of a second. Wow. The other facility that we used was a pulse power facility. And so we are able to use electrical current to generate pressures. And there, the time scales were a little bit longer. Instead of being 10 billionths of a second, it was about 100 to 500 billionths of a second. But still, we're talking very quick experiments where you're trying to gradually change the pressure as a function of time in such a manner that the material stays cold and that the compression waves don't form a shock wave. By incorporating those two measurements together, we are able to get a high accuracy measurement at about one terapascal. Before, I mean, the experimental data, you said only went up to about three-tenths or four-tenths of a terapascal, correct? Right. When people were thinking about how gold or platinum is going to behave at way higher pressures than that, they would extrapolate that trend line, right? And say, maybe it'll behave in this way. Through your experimental data that you found in this study, did you find that it was kind of in line with what predictions were based on these lower pressure experiments? As a community, we're not short on theories. Mm -hmm. So there was a large disparity in the theoretical predictions when they were extrapolated to the terapascal conditions. So there were a range of values that they might think this density is for this pressure, whereas another group might be operating on a different density for a different pressure. Is that correct? You're absolutely right. So there's different theoretical efforts for how gold and platinum would behave and how one might develop those models. There's also different functional forms people might use for the low pressure data to extrapolate to high pressure. And obviously your choice of a functional form really influences where you end when you extrapolate. So we really wanted to go after experiments to provide the experimental data to really bound and really provide a, a foundational measurement that a broad community of researchers could use. Your team was successful in extending the standards for high pressure, not quite up to the interior of gas giants yet, but up to one terapascal. How are these standards going to be used to help researchers better compare data and collaborate with each other? There's many questions regarding the different approaches taken in the laboratory to access high pressures and how do we compare them. An excellent example is the work that's been done trying to understand when hydrogen becomes metallic. 
And so people have been using uh, shock waves to do that. People have been using the technique that I've been talking about, dynamic ramp compression. Both of those techniques are very dynamic and they're very fast. Other researchers have been using a static approach, so this diamond anvil cell approach. All researchers are observing metallic hydrogen, but there's some fundamental discrepancies between where each researcher believes the hydrogen's becoming metallic. And so we were showing through our measurements that we have a standard that part of the community can use. We also showed that when we compared measurements across many different time scales, I talked about how we had performed measurements on the billionth of a second and a hundred billionths of a second. We also compared some of our measurements to experiments that were performed over days or weeks. And we are finding that there was excellent agreement amongst all of that data. And so we're finding now that the rate at which we perform the experiments, for some materials, the rate doesn't matter. So that's great. That says if you go to different laboratories, you have different approaches trying to access high pressures, at least for gold and platinum, the rate doesn't matter. And we'll all come to some general consensus about the pressure that we're reaching. Usually I do these interviews before the paper is published, but in this case, your paper has already been published. And since it's something that seems like it would be so useful for people in your field, I'm curious what the reception has been like. Oh, the reception has been phenomenal. This community at the same time I was developing really impressive new techniques to really push the limits. One technique, which is just astounding, they created uh, micro balls of diamond and they take these micro balls that might be 50 microns, so the diameter of a human hair, and they balance two of them on top of each other in between these much too larger diamonds. So they're creating sort of a diamond pair inside a diamond pair, and they squeeze all that together and they get to a terapascal. So as this community is really pushing to higher and higher pressures, and they've been struggling with discrepancies between measurements because there's no universally accepted pressure standard at these conditions. I think the community's excited that there's a new experimentally benchmarked standard, and we published some initial data trying to do some cross comparisons between what people were doing, showing that if they used our model, we were able to get much better self-consistency between researchers. We're hopeful that it will be adopted and resolving a longstanding issue. I'm excited to see then what comes next. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Dane Frattenduano is an experimental physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Michelson Foundation, in which custom publishing director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Laura McKay about the importance of diversity in science. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the sponsored interview from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by Michelson Philanthropies. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Dr. Laura McKay, Professor and Laboratory Head at the Peter Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne in Australia. The focus of her laboratory is on the molecular signals that govern tissue resident memory T-cell differentiation, with a view to harnessing these cells for the development of new immunotherapeutic strategies against disease. 
She's also a 2018 winner of the Michelson Prize in Human Immunology and Vaccine Research. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for inviting me to chat with you today. Laura, the work you're doing is fascinating, but in our conversation today, I wanted to focus on the importance of supporting and promoting diversity in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. A few weeks ago, our editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Gary Michelson, founder of the Michelson Medical Research Foundation and co-chair of Michelson Philanthropies, and we asked him for his thoughts on diversity. Here's what he had to say. People with different backgrounds and different experiences perceive the world in different ways. And, and that's what we need. Imagination is more valuable than learning. I mean, Einstein has that famous quip about that, that knowledge is limited, imagination is unlimited. And, and so we need to have people bringing these different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives to science these other ways of seeing things. Now, Laura, I'd very much like to get your perspective on this. Sean, I couldn't agree with that quote more. The essence of science is discovery and to come up with something new. So you need a range of perspectives to do that. And really, you don't just want more of the same. You need people who are going to think outside the box and come up with new ideas and be disruptive in their thinking. And so I think particularly to innovate, you have to have a range of perspectives from different backgrounds. And I think some of the most successful laboratory teams are those that are highly diverse. Now, broadly, how do you see the current status of diversity in STEM? Is it improving? Is it stagnant? Is it perhaps moving backwards? Well, it's well known that, of course, STEM is notoriously dominated by white males. There's definitely a gender disparity and there's a lot of conversations about that. Also, certain minority groups are certainly underrepresented. Improving, yes. I mean, there's certainly a growing awareness and open conversations happening around these issues, such, for example, the Athena Swan program, which is an initiative to sort of put together gender action plans for, for institutions around the areas of STEM. But we could have a little bit of a setback just resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, a lot of people worked from home. Women often take disproportionate caring roles. So um, that would sort of contribute to a loss in productivity. And also, certainly, there's been a lot of loss of international recruiting and international researchers from laboratories. So I think we might see a little dip in diversity over the next couple of years as a result of that pandemic. So, Laura, what do you see as some of the major barriers to greater diversity in the sciences? So I think one of the most obvious disparities in science is the male to female ratio. And certainly there are less women in senior leadership roles. You see a similar entry level of both males and females into science. And then around the time when women have carer responsibilities and often there's disproportionate roles there with females often being the primary caregiver, that's when you really see a loss of women out of the pipeline. You see a lot of them fall out of science. And so I think a retention around women during that career stage is absolutely critical. And also another issue here, because there are less women in leadership roles, is that often female academics will have inequitable number of university tasks. For example, you know, more service on different committees or more mentorship roles. And so sometimes the sort of notion of gender balancing on committees is sort of backfiring because women are doing a lot more of these roles than they should have to. And so less time to spend on their research. 
Another issue is that people from socioeconomic backgrounds that may be disadvantaged might be steered away from science because science is a career where we all know there's a lack of job security, short-term contracts. Often postdocs are just on a one-year contract and so that just might not be possible or a appealing career for someone from a financially disadvantaged background. Also, you know, a really um, important component of science is really putting yourself out there. And it's actually been shown in a study that smaller minority groups actually have fewer co-author papers. And we know for the success of a, especially a younger scientist, the number of papers that you have is absolutely critical. And so often the opportunity to get on these papers is to do with mixing with the right crowd, asking for what you deserve and putting yourself out there. And people who don't do this will be disadvantaged in moving forward. And what could universities and research institutions do to promote more diversity? It's a complicated issue and certainly I think there needs to be a lot of work in different arenas. But as a start, and a lot of institutes are doing this, having gender equity plans, inclusion and diversity should be mandatory for institutions. Concrete numbers, for example, or targets that they have to meet to sort of you know raise their diversity. And also, I guess, changing the culture, getting people to, to speak up, I think would be really important in having a better representation of some groups. So that's universities, research institutions. Uh, what about grant awarding bodies like NIH and the European Research Council? I think that these are moving in the right direction. There's a lot of funding initiatives, for example, for women or underrepresented minorities, for example, return to work grants or so forth. And so I think that there's moves in the right direction there to um, give additional support to underrepresented groups. Now, I also wanted to ask you a few questions about being an, an early career scientist. You, you're still starting off ramping up your career. So what type of support are you looking for to advance your research? Uh, the absolute best thing is support for high risk, high reward science. That would definitely be the most exciting just to really invest in, um, not necessarily talking about myself, but, you know, investing in innovative people. I mean, the problem for early career researchers is a lot of funding. It's really certainly, and I can speak for um, Australian funding bodies, the type of funding that will get up is safe science, science that you've got a track record for. I think a lot of the big ideas that came out decades ago, they wouldn't get funding in today's climate. And certainly the Michelson Foundation or HHMI, for example, are big advocates in supporting innovative young researchers with big ideas. And um, that's absolutely critical for an early career researcher. Do prizes play an important role in boosting the visibility of early career scientists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives you a massive boost to your confidence exactly when you need it. I mean, being a scientist, you need to be quite bold, I think. And so having that confidence and increasing your sort of research impact and visibility, it's absolutely critical at that early stage. But also, even if you don't win the prizes, I think even the application process is really is a really great thing for a researcher, because sometimes you can identify gaps in your CV just from putting the application together. You know, that that's puts you in a better position for your career planning, gives you a chance to reflect on your progress. And so even putting in the application, I think, is fantastic for a young researcher. So coming back around to the first topic that we talked about, uh, diversity, uh, how do you think awards and prizes like the, the Michelson Prizes um, can encourage a more diverse array of applicants? Well, I think the Michelson Foundation is doing this very well in really promoting the visibility of these prizes throughout research institutions. And then I think it really comes down to supervisors and mentors encouraging early career researchers to apply, giving them the confidence, putting their lab members forward to do it. 
I think that's absolutely critical in, you know, pushing your people to, you know, strive and apply for things that maybe they don't think they have a chance in getting. I think that's really critical. Now, I'm sure we have a lot of early career scientists who listen to this podcast. So um, I thought I would ask you, why did you want to be a scientist and how did your passion for research develop? I guess when I was in high school and even university, I had no passion for science. I must admit, I saw myself as a creative. I wanted to be an artist and science just didn't fit with that largely because I didn't I didn't know a scientist and I didn't understand what discovery science was. I simply did a biology degree to do something sensible. And then it was it was actually during my degree that um, I started to learn about microbes and viruses. And my first love was virology. And so I moved into a PhD in sort of the immune responses to viruses. And once I was in the lab, that's where my passion kicked off. Then I realized what sort of career can you do where you can just go into work every day, ask questions, collaborate with people, come up with new ideas, carry them out. It is the most creative career that I could have imagined. And I couldn't do anything else now. It's, a, I, it's an absolute love. I do it for free. Well, Laura, thank you so much. It's, it's really been a delight talking to you. And uh, thank you for making the time to speak with me today. Absolute pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Our thanks to Michelson Philanthropies for making this conversation, as well as the new Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology possible. And thank you to the Science Podcast audience for your interest and attention. Until next time. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. On the site, you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg with production help from Podigy and Sarah Crespi. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.